0: Hi there, I'm Mark Loftus, founder and CEO of Jaya, and I'm sitting here today in this East London recording studio, is the ink dries on the Jaya white paper. Well, honestly, there's maybe one more edit before we publish, but we're very nearly there, and what a fascinating process it's been. I've been writing it together with my colleague, Claire Cohen, who's our new head of consulting and Director of Psychology at Jaya and she's here with me today. We've been articulating our unique Jaya approach to team effectiveness for this white paper and that process is stimulating loads of really interesting conversations between Claire and myself and with our wider group of colleagues. So we thought it might be interesting to share some of what we've been discussing with you, our customers, our users and the wider JAR community. So, Claire, tell me, how was it landing at JAR and diving straight into this challenge of writing the white paper?
1: <laughs> it's been amazing, intense, certainly, but I feel like my brain has developed within a whole new set of neural connections, a new category, if you like, which is called Teams. So, yeah, really fascinating. Oh, go on. Tell me more. (laughs) Well, we, we did a really deep dive into every bit of research about teams that we could possibly lay our hands on. I thought, given my background as a chartered occupational psychologist, that I probably knew a bit about teams, but I now know a whole lot more. What I've really enjoyed is the way that we've joined the dots between the disparate pieces of research We've distilled some fundamental truths about how teams work, and we've been able to put an overarching structure around them to really help generate value from all of these insights.
0: And that's you mentioned structure there. Um, it's probably something about me, but I think it's also core to to Jaya. part of our, our approach in creating Jira as a product is to have a structure that makes all these insights accessible and helpful for anyone who finds themselves in a team. Well, okay, structure, but in your view, what do you think people are going to be most interested in hearing about today when it comes to hearing about how teams work and, most importantly, how to become more effective?
1: Well, there's so many juicy topics to choose from. We probably won't cover them all. They'll have to read the white paper for that. But uh, to start with, what, what I'd probably encourage our audience to do is just reflect on their own experiences of being in teams and how, for many people, that experience has probably undergone huge shifts in recent years. Most notably, of course, we've had COVID and remote working, aided, thankfully, I think, by the breakneck speed of technological advancements, digitalisation. Um, and now people will probably be working in virtual or hybrid working teams um, in many cases. Some will be in multiple teams. In fact, up to about a fifth of us um, as part of our jobs will be in four or more teams, mm-hmm. according to the research. And that feels like a significant shift from some years ago.
0: You mentioned COVID, I have to ask. Do you think that's materially changed the landscape of teams and team effectiveness?
1: Well, yes and no. Teams have always and will always be complex dynamic systems. If you think about it, just trying to figure out one individual, someone that you know and love, is complex enough. You know, thinking about how you figure them out, why did they do this, what on earth were they thinking about, you know, and so on. And then you factor into that equation four or five more people in your team um, and suddenly the complexity skyrockets. You have to think through all of those complex relationship dynamics. And then layered on top of that, we've the environments that many of us are now in and how complex and uncertain and ambiguous those environments are. So COVID certainly contributed to the complexity and expedited the move to virtual teams for many of us and all the challenges that that entails. But that was just one more thing, hot on the heels of other hugely complex environmental shifts, such as increasing regulation the ever-broadening diversity agendas, Brexit and so on. So in Teams then, we not only have the basic challenge of figuring out the work and the tasks to be done by the team, we have to figure out how we best coordinate and cooperate together to do those tasks effectively. And we have to navigate all of that within this complex web of intricate relationships that we build with each of the other team members not to mention the wider organisation all the while doing all of that under continuously shifting uncertain environmental conditions.
0: So it, it makes it seem like the complexity is endless don't you think and yet you know if I challenge that slightly somehow don't we just get away with it you know what? Why does it all matter when it comes to teams? Maybe it's understanding this complexity is just an indulgence for academic <laughs> specialists like us. Yeah. You know, something we've always wanted to do, but actually the rest of the world?
1: You make a good point. <laughs> that stuff of complexity is all there. It's swirling around about us. Um, And most of us cope, all of us cope just by tuning out most of it um, and acting on autopilot for so many things. And actually, that's a powerfully adaptive approach on our part. If we were to notice all of that complexity and make our decisions reviewing all of that data all the time we would go completely loopy, wouldn't we? (laughs) And so we can only cope with so much um, information and make so many decisions at any one time. Otherwise, we get exhausted. So we find shortcuts to help us function better, little rules or programs that we run in our brain to help reduce the amount of decisions.
0: So do you have examples of that? I mean, I can think through, I think for myself, when you're talking about rules and programs in our brains that help us reduce the number of decisions, what kind of thing have you got in mind?
1: Yeah. So for example, I I think a classic example is Steve Jobs. He always turned up to the office wearing exactly the same thing. It was one less decision that he had to make. As we kind of create all of these rules of thumb, um, which turn into unconscious habits, and that gets us into certain grooves of how we solve problems. And those habits over time shape how we go about developing and maintaining our relationships, how we interact with teammates. Um, and Paul might be, um, somebody might decide that they want to stay quiet in a group. That's a habit that they get into and they get into listening to people in more detail. And over time, they become really good listeners. That, those sorts of examples.
0: Okay, so you're saying that we're all doing that. We've all got these little rules going on these habits how do, fit that into into the world of teams the implications for for, for teams
1: mm. yeah I mean the, the problem is that um, everybody has all of these automated rules going on and so y- you pile the complexity of that five or six people and and so with all of these millions of unconscious processes and decisions being made you you um, probably miss out on opportunities um, to actually apply better discernment and judgment to our decision making. And and we plough on regardless. um, And and we don't always bring conscious thought and attention to some of the issues that might be important for us to think about.
0: Oh, let me just follow this then. So if we're trying to attend to all of that, though, isn't that impossible? I mean, If I think about teams, teams do talk. Mm and We've left our colleagues upstairs and they're talking.
1: Sure, absolutely. Teams do get together, thank goodness. Um, And they talk through what they feel are the most important things. Um, But after that, they then disperse and return to their work and run those habits again. Um, And they have the best intentions and carry out what the team might have talked about and decided and they aspire for good outcomes but yet they're still mass- missing really valuable data along the well, way.
0: Let me, let me press one more. Does it matter?
1: Well, that's the point here. We need to ask ourselves that question. Does it matter? You know, and the question is, are we attending to the right things or the wrong things? Are we inadvertently missing stuff that matters And are we attending too much to some stuff that doesn't matter? And how do we tell the difference?
0: Okay, but isn't one route just to put faith in our team leader?
1: Sure. Um,
0: You know, they're they're the team leader. They've been appointed for a reason. Maybe they can figure it out for us. Yeah. Help us kind of deal with that complexity.
1: Uh, I mean... It's true. I I think the job of being a team leader is absolutely one of the hardest jobs in the world. And usually the reason that they've been given that role is that they're smart, that they're trustworthy, and that they are able to figure out a lot by knowing their team members. Um, But you could think of it in the same way that you might think of air traffic controllers. You know, wouldn't you want to equip your air traffic controllers with the most up-to-date technology and data feed to help them do their jobs better. Why not offer the same level of support to our team leaders?
0: As opposed to doing nothing.
1: <laughs> yes, what we call the do-nothing solution. But it's not a solution. It's it's also not exactly doing nothing, is it? It's It's really leaving it up to the manager alone to figure out all of these insanely complex processes using just their intuition and experience.
0: Actually, if I just jump in there, one of the bits of the research that I was fascinated was by was the, um, what they call laissez-faire leadership. You know, so a team is kind of not really attending to the team the team dynamics actually actively eroded the effectiveness of the team. Mm. Um, so it was almost like doing nothing wasn't just nothing; it was undermining the team.
1: Yeah, and and, and that do nothing feels sort of cheap in the short term or effective perhaps, um, and it might be, but it, as you say, it's really in the long term. It, it, it has lots of costs associated. With it potentially, if you're having high turnover or sick leave, all those sorts of uh, costs that are, are often either put down as unavoidable costs or go unnoticed,
0: and probably not attributed to the team.
1: Exactly, exactly. So, team effectiveness—it's a, a business imperative. Teams are the very vehicle of delivering business performance.
0: Okay, so. Before you tell us about some of the methods to achieve highly effective teams, just tell us a bit about the approach we took when it came to the research, Mm. because I'm sure our listeners are going, well, I'm hearing the assertions, but where's the research? Where's the evidence?
1: Mm. We conducted a very systematic review of the research literature. You know, I won't go into the details of the 35 meta-analyses, which are kind of summaries of multiple research papers themselves, and then the dozens and dozens of individual studies where there weren't meta-analyses available, and then ploughing through all the most up-to-date books on teams and looking at the research they pointed to, which led us right back to the research that we had uncovered. So I think we've done a pretty thorough sweep of what's out there about teams.
0: One of the things because of the way my brain works, I got curious, you know, meta-analysis sweeps together studies on lots of different studies looking at each of those studies looking at dozens and maybe hundreds of teams. And I reckon there's more than a hundred thousand teams that have been studied. And you principally have been trawling that literature and the question of course is what are the key findings?
1: <laughs> Feels like hundreds of thousands. Yeah, the key findings, I guess if I had to boil it down, it's that there is no magic wand. Oh, sure. <laughs> Sorry, no secret formulas here. Um, it it takes hard work. It takes continual discipline to keep getting it right. Teams aren't formed with this immediate, innate understanding of how they best work together. They have to learn about each other. They have to hone their teamworking skills together, especially if they're not all located in the same place. Um, and they have to keep reviewing their processes and adjusting them, adjusting the way they work over time. And we found very clear in the research that teams that do adopt these disciplines to help the development of their team processes and working, they're far more likely to sustain performance, even during times of disruption and uncertainty.
0: And of course, the obvious follow on question from that is how do you achieve that? You know, a couple of team offsites maybe?
1: (laughs) Well, that's certainly a popular approach, the team offsites. Listen, something is usually better than nothing. but if you were to do a, a cost-benefit analysis of those off-site approaches, you'd probably conclude that there are alternative methods that would be much more worthwhile investing in. But having said that, team offsites are certainly an extravagant way to improve morale for a few days. Uh,
0: okay. So <laughs> not your vote then.
1: So,
0: <laughs> well, let's say we do have a team that's disciplined about reviewing and improving its effectiveness, is, is that enough?
1: That's a really good start. That's a really good start. Uh, it's one of the fundamentals for teams, but it's not the only fundamental. They also need to develop a shared understanding of their direction, their goals, their objectives as a team. And these goals and objectives need to be not just clear to people, but they have to mean something to all of the team members, not just the team leader. It's not enough for the team leader to to just dictate what they are. They have to all be on the same page. Um, Psychologists describe this all being on the same page experience as having shared mental models. And this concept of shared mental models comes up time and again in the research. It's a really critical component that impacts so many different aspects of team working, like motivation or conflict management in particular.
0: Okay, so that, let me get this good. So a clear destination, team members being on the same page about what they're trying to achieve as a team, that's really pretty fundamental. And I can see that that takes some time to achieve. It's not as simple as the team leader sending a member. Um, what about, you know, if you've got the goal, how about planning the pathway together? Does that have to be as crystal clear as the goals themselves?
1: Be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> but in the real world, we know that that's often simply not possible. You, you might know the next few steps. You can't know all the steps to achieving the goals sometimes. Sometimes you can, of course, um, but more often we can't. What's much more important is that team members can envisage a, a believable pathway to get there. Even if they don't yet have clarity on all of the steps. So, those moonshots that we often hear about, you know, where leaders go for the almost impossible goal, are fantastic when they pull them off, Uh, makes great headlines, makes great books. But in reality, most of those fail um, because of the demotivation that team members often feel when faced with an almost inevitably impossible task. So having this strong collective belief within the team that that the goal is clear and the destination that they're aiming for is somehow achievable given the people and the resources that they have available. That's not to say you you should set yourself easy goals. That also would be demotivating. But the collective expectations of the team should be, you know, if we're smart, if we do it right, we can do this. You know, we can pull this off.
0: It's interesting listening to you talk, Claire. I can hear so many of these ifs coming in, you know. And here we have another one. You know, the team needs to believe in its own capacity to achieve challenging goals. There's a lot of prerequisites involved in getting to that, though, aren't there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. One of the most important prerequisites is trust. Trust is really key and it's hard to move at pace without trust. If I don't trust you as my team member to do your part, either because you don't have the right skill set or because I might not have faith that as a person you'll do the right thing by me, then we have a problem and our efficiency as a team could be hampered. So I might circumnavigate you, I might do it myself um, and that then sets off an inefficient dynamic and that, that's just between me and you. Multiply that out to five or six other team members who don't fully trust one another and you can start to see why putting the building blocks in to establish solid trust is is really key.
0: So I must ask, what do you actually mean by trust? I mean... Mean
1: and measure mm. well, a, a fascinating aspect that came out in the research about trust um is that trust is a multifaceted thing. Um, surprisingly, it's not the emotional form of trust, you know, that sort of trust that's built in one of those offsites that we mentioned earlier. That sort of emotional trust is not the priority when it comes to initiating the cultivation of trust amongst a team, at least at first. The most important form of trust to develop really early within a team is what the psychologists call cognitive-based trust. And that is about my belief in whether you can do the tasks assigned to you. Do you have the skills? Do you have the expertise and experience? And that's why selecting the right talent and skills for a team is fundamental. Without that cognitive-based trust, there's little scope to develop then the interpersonal emotional trust, um, even if you think that person is decent and has.
0: And, and, you know, we already, we got into this by thinking about the role of the team leader, specifically the role of the team leader in instilling and creating trust.
1: Mm. Yeah, the, the team leader is so fundamental to this question of developing trust in a team. They're responsible for setting the overall tone and creating the psychological environment for the team. And that leads on to another key concept highlighted by the research, which is psychological safety. Psychological safety is high when any team member feels like they are trusted by the leader and the other team members, and therefore they feel confident to speak up to raise objections, to say how they feel about things without any you know fear of recrimination or making any career-limiting move. In fact, um, one of the researchers, Amy Ed- Edmondson, she's a Harvard professor. She's done a great job in raising the profile of this concept and highlighting the need to attend to it in our teams. I mean, it can literally save lives. Think about, for example, the junior nurse Um, who spots a medical instrument perhaps being left inside the abdomen of uh, a person being operated on, but perhaps is too afraid to tell the uh, scary consultant that they made a mistake. Uh, and that's a life or death matter. So that's just one area that the team leader contributes to team effectiveness and getting the best out of team members. But the team leader, it contributes on so many other levels. And Mark, you know a lot about that subject. Tell us a bit more about the impact of team leaders on team effectiveness.
0: Sure. Um, Well, I, I think the first thing I'd turn to is a pretty obvious one. I mean, it's the key role they have in getting the team moving. You know, what the researchers we've been reading call initiating structure. Anyone who's had the experience of being in a leaderless group, and here I, you know, maybe think for example, a group of people who don't know each other very well in a new city trying to decide where to go. It's a leaderless group. Anyone who's had that experience will know that it can be a pretty maddening experience. So the first thing for the team leader to do is to take the responsibility to mobilize the team. To take the lead, it's as simple as that. Now as they do this, and actually often team leaders aren't aware of it in the moment, it's difficult as you said before to be aware of everything in the moment, they're actually shaping the culture and ways of working of the team. So for example many of the executive teams that we've worked with over the years end up in what I call a hub and spoke way of working where all of the key interactions root through the team leader. When we talk to the leaders, this is not the culture that they want. They will talk about, they had in mind something very different, but they have inadvertently created that culture through those early patterns of interactions. And I would also highlight at this stage, The third related theme is about the team leader's role in bringing diversity into the team and creating a strong sense of inclusion. And most importantly, inclusion and valuing differences. You know, it's so easy for people, I suppose, to pay lip service to diversity. And then what we see actually happening in the team is kind of people get beaten up for the differences that they actually bring. The very differences they bring to the team become a source of maybe conflict. Uh, so that, that that would be my starting point around teams.
1: Yeah. Yeah. As you say, so many different roles. And, and, and so if the team leader role is so important for all of these different key functions of getting a team to be really effective, can you explain then why we found so much in the research about the benefits of distributing leadership responsibilities throughout the team, or what the research termed as shared leadership.
0: Yeah, it's almost a paradox, isn't it? I'm highlighting the key role of the team leader, and the research highlights the role of shared the importance of shared leadership. And I think as a way of getting into this, I draw on Richard Hackman's formulation uh, of leadership, which is, It's actually any activity that makes a team a healthier, more adaptable and more productive entity. Anything that makes the team better able to deliver on its purpose. And if you think about that, there are so many different contributions needed that it actually becomes absurd to think that any one person could or should encompass all of these. For example, you know, is the person who's adept at deep strategic insight the same person who needs to tune into the emotional agendas in the team, and the same person who needs to make sure that the practical resources are in place for the team to deliver. So, but I mean, it simply can't 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 work can't happen. There isn't that paragon of virtue. Um, so, one of the core aims of team leadership is to develop shared leadership across the team. Or another phrase we've used over the years is that leaders create leadership. And the research evidence, as you know, is really clear. It's central to teams getting the best out of each other and delivering on items where shared leadership, people are much more likely to get the best out of each other. It's really important for efficiency. You know, if, um, if you have shared leadership, you're much more likely to make the right decisions at the right times and speed up progress. And then perhaps most interesting, It's a really it's been found to be a really important factor in mental health and well-being, seemingly to do with the combination of both support and autonomy offered by shared leadership. It's a fascinating area. And as you say, if people want to know more, they'll probably need to read the white
1: paper. (laughs) Uh, And I know in part two of this podcast, we are planning to explore the underlying framework of the strengths and leadership archetypes in the Jaya framework in more depth and find a bit more about how the framework came into being. But, But for now, let's home in on just two or three of the nine Jaya leadership archetypes The research evidence repeatedly highlights the importance of the transformational leader. Tell us a bit about them.
0: Uh, It's quite easy to, uh, given that I share my life with somebody who profiles very strongly as a transformational leader. So I feel I've studied at close quarters. So they're the type of people, now whether they're a formal team leader or team member with transformational leadership skills, particularly skilled at influencing you know that in itself the world of influence is a huge additional topic i'd love to get into um often people talk think about influencing as getting my point of view across but the transformational the people who are skilled in transformational leadership are really skilled at reading the organization at building a broader perspective And they're great at getting their colleagues out of the weeds and shifting the focus from inside the team and getting them to connect beyond the boundaries of the team. You know, they will often have the mantra of, you know, the action's out there. We need to connect to the world outside the team.
1: It it sounds good, but why is that so important?
0: For the simple reason that teams don't work in isolation. Teams in the workplace are part of the bigger organisational system. So when the teams help to widen their perspective on what's important, they can position themselves to demonstrate their value in much more effective ways. That, that's one. Again, we probably haven't got time to go further, but what we do know is that most workplace teams are experiencing more pressure and more stress and psychologists have researched for many years now the narrowing effect of stress yeah so as people come under more and more pressure and stress our focus becomes narrower and narrower transformational leaders challenge that and try and keep all you'll hear people saying things like we need to keep this high and wide
1: Hmm. well i'd love to dig into that even more but um Let's move on to another archetype. Um, How about the charismatic leader? The charismatic leader is both revered and maligned in almost equal measures. If we were to look at the business section of our bookshops, (laughs) tell us why we should celebrate the presence of the charismatic leader types within our teams. Yeah,
0: sure. And interestingly, I'll mention as I go into this, that in our Jira data set, the charismatic leader is probably one of the least common, commonly seen profiles, which probably additionally highlights the importance uh, of what they contribute to a team. You talked earlier, Claire, about the importance early on of team getting really clear about their goals and building that shared mental model. There's a difference between that and actually bringing that sense of purpose to life and helping people create an emotional connection with it. So that's a starting point, having that, if you like, cognitive clarity. The charismatic leader traits mean that they're able to help people make an emotional connection, to make it feel like it really matters. And of course, there's an abundance of research saying that where people are feeling connected and feel that their own sense of personal purpose connects with their organisations, they're going to go the extra mile, they're going to go the extra kilometre for our international uh, listeners. And it's the team members who talk with optimism and zest about what the team could achieve that will really help the team as a whole connect to the collective sense of purpose.
1: Yeah, well, the research does really demonstrate the power of the charismatic leader type when it comes to raising levels of, of, of what the psychologists call group potency um, that's the we can do this effect um, and ultimately impacts group performance positively too not only that the, the research suggests that they're good for customers as well uh, that they raise levels of customer satisfaction uh, service provision all sorts of really- oh, hang
0: on. Um, I think I'm um- I'm not detecting the enthusiasm that maybe I was voicing about
1: leaders. <laughs> so uh, well, yes, there is. Uh, well, sort of. Um, some of the less than salubrious characters that pop up as high profile business or political leaders are often associated with being highly charismatic. Um, and they they can have charisma, um and and these types wreak havoc on the health and effectiveness of teams. Um, but they don't have all of the other ingredients that we're talking about with charismatic leaders. So we have to be careful about how we differentiate between those who you were describing as so valuable and these toxic leaders.
0: For sure. so. Teams benefit from charismatic leaders when the charisma is accompanied by the right values and motives. So you could think of, I don't know, Michelle Obama maybe, Dalai Lama, both fabulously charismatic characters. But they have a deep felt sense of purpose towards causes that they feel make the world better. Um, And that's something I know we return to in Jaya time and time again, the simple question, we believe the world would be a better place if, but we can see that you know, with Michelle Obama and the Dalai Lama, without that level of charisma, they might not have moved. Well, it's more than teams, isn't it? You know, times whole worlds or movements, uh, and 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 mobilise people to 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 make changes, sometimes really profound changes.
1: Yeah. And on the subject of change, one of the things we often see organisations grappling with is how to get their teams to be more innovative and creative. So is this the pinnacle of team effectiveness, do you think, Mark? Do, do all the other parts of team effectiveness equation, do they have to be present to expect this surge of innovation in a team?
0: Well, fascinating. Um. And yes, definitely a topic for Jaya to gather data on as I gather my thoughts on that one. Um, yeah, is it the pinnacle? Well, when I talked right at the start about um, the way Jaya works and the structure of the Jaya product, bringing uh, a way of digesting this complexity and guiding teams in their development. And I think we would say that if teams have not got what we talk about as the foundational four in place, uh, and I'll mention, I'll, I'll explain that in a moment, the foundational four in place, it will be really hard for them to innovate in a way that's much more than maybe a couple of bright ideas. But to truly drive innovation through to delivery, teams really do need to have these foundations put in place. So the kind of things that I'm talking about there, as you talked about Claire, the the sense of clarity of direction, the sense of believable pathway, the commitment of the team to really work at the disciplines of becoming an effective team, and the recurrent, recurrent theme, a team working at getting the best from each other. You know, if teams aren't doing that, then for sure, I don't think teams are going to be particularly innovative. But neither are they likely to be particularly entrepreneurial, right? They're not going to be the kind of teams that spot opportunities others have missed. Um, so yeah, I would I would take I think any team uh, and get them to focus on the foundations of team effectiveness first. And inevitably, I'm going to say if you build strong foundations, the structure that you create is much, much more likely to be effective, dynamic and make the impact that you want.
1: So we've covered a lot of ground today. I think it would be worthwhile now, perhaps, just to remind our audience why we're so interested in teams. Our manifesto at Gire is essentially that teams are the most important vehicle for driving business outcomes. Yet it's really easy to get it a bit wrong because we're not attending sufficiently to the things that make teams work most effectively. And we think at Jaya that we can play a role in helping organisations to improve that.
0: I think that's right. What's revealed in our white paper is that whilst a lot is known about key principles underlying team effectiveness, Really, I would say the research is still very much in its infancy. infancy. And what do I mean by that? You know, if I think about, well, we've looked at at least 30 years worth of research and probably, probably longer. It's still very much in its infancy in one particular area. And it is about linking all of that, if you like, academic research with the tangible business metrics and outcomes that we know that, Our customers, when we talk to them, the business leaders we talk talk to, are wanting. Um, Jaya's role we see as twofold. First of all, helping businesses be ever clear about those outcomes. And second, connecting from the amazingly rich body of evidence to crystallise that into some simple to action pathways that every team in an organisation can take on for themselves and reliably pursue and achieve the outcomes they're wanting. So that's what we're committed to doing. Our view is there's a heck of a lot more research to be done and our commitment as Jaya is that we will create Jaya as a product and a platform to systematically collect data to inform these questions so that maybe in a year's time, Claire, you and I can sit down and say, okay, what have we found so far? And that we'll keep doing that over the coming years. Make the research available because it's research that's needed so that business leaders can uh, understand not just the importance of teams, but know and have confidence that there are reliable ways of teams developing themselves. So thank you, Claire. And thanks for listening, people. Um, As Claire mentioned, there's part two of this podcast uh, available where we do a deeper dive into the JIA framework around strengths and leadership archetypes.